Who would have thought we arrive at this occasion, at this day, when we started the process of looking for a new minister at Robertson just a short time while ago. But here we are, and God has his ways, and I say well done to the parish of Robertson. Uh, We won't talk about the Thomases just yet, but well done guys for all the work that's been put in to get this done, and uh, the work done at the rectory, and presenting this place. Uh, It's a sign of the unity that we'll speak about in a moment from the Bible, but also it's a sign of your welcome to the Thomas family, and uh, I pray unto God that the ministry that will commence today may be able to continue to grow from the work that's already been done under God. Of course, if you're going to pick an obvious place to come to after Dubai, you would pick Robertson. <laughs> That's the first thing I would choose. Uh, and you'll sign out the similarities are obvious to anyone who looks. I want to look at this passage read to us just then from Ephesians 4. And I want to pick up the theme of this by looking at leadership and what does leadership mean for this church at Robertson as we commence with under the leadership of uh, Graham Thomas. If you want to get any minister uh, to crawl into the fetal position, ask him what books has he read on Christian leadership. There's a whole galaxy of them. I know one man who, over his sabbatical, read 100 books on Christian leadership. He's still in counselling today, and he'll recover eventually. <laughs> However, the... Questions that are raised in books on leadership often don't come to what we have here in the Bible. And I say that because I think this section of the Bible has some very particular aspects of Christian leadership are embedded here, but I don't think they often come across in what's required in Christian leadership. So verse 3 is perhaps the controlling verse of the whole section. Paul writes in verse 3, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Unity of the Spirit, bond of peace. I want to say, I think these are fundamental things of any church and what we require of any leadership that comes to church life. However, they're the sort of things that often aren't picked up in books on Christian leadership. The outcome of good leadership will see these things. There's a unity... God's unity by the Spirit of God amongst God's people and a bond of peace, an unbreakable bond that the fellowship can be strong around. These are characteristics of leadership when it's properly exercised in the life of the church. And you do need leadership. Do you notice uh, what Paul says in verse 3? He starts by saying, make every effort. That is, something's required for these things to be outcomes. They don't just naturally occur. In fact, our natural disinclination will find probably disunity and lack of harmony. Leadership's required to bring about unity and peace amongst God's people. Effort is required. And church leadership, when Graham starts, needs continued attention to these sorts of things if this is going to be an aim. Because my observation would be it's very easy for church to find disunity in all manner of things. I spent five years in America, not like Dubai, but I did hear a story once of a church that split uh, when there was a potluck dinner and one of the church elders didn't receive as much ham at the servery as the other elder. And there was a great big kerfuffle that occurred because the amount of ham was not up to standard and the church split about ham. 
you laugh, but that shows a sign. There's a sign there embedded in that church life of what we'd have to say immaturity. There's a problem there, isn't it? That you rise to that level. In other words, there hasn't been good leadership there. So I want to say verse 3 is the key, and verses 4 through 16 gives the grounds and means by which the leadership will find these things. So it says verses 4 to 16 spell out what's required for healthy church life, healthy church leadership, with an outcome verse 3 that's gained. So I want to start by just looking through verses 1 to 3, then quickly verses 4 to 16, looking at what's required. Just a reminder, verses 1 to 3. Paul writes, As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the, of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Not hard to miss the weightiness of what Paul is imposing on the church. I urge you, I exhort you, I, this is what I want. I want you to live a life worthy of the calling, the effectual calling to be a Christian. This is asking, well, he's simply saying, I want this church to live out what it means to be Christian. I want it to be an example of living out amongst itself, individually, corporately, what it means to be Christian. Live up to that high calling of the God, the Father, who's called you. Um, so if you look at Robertson, I'll speak. If you're here, visit tonight, congratulations. I'm glad you're here, but I'm going to talk in context often about Robertson Anglican. So if you're part of Robertson Anglican, you can look at each other on any particular Sunday and say this is really a gathering of the called ones. The people who come here have been called by God and we are gathered as those who have been called by our gracious Lord. And he says, live out. Live out then what it means to be Christian. Okay, So what's that look like? Lots of things you can think about. Well, verse 2 is where he goes to. This is an example of what it means to live out being Christian. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, <clears throat> bearing with one another in love. Get that? Very simple, isn't it? Humble and gentle, patient and bearing with one another in love. Humble and gentle, one sort of group. Is a, there's no room, if you're going to live out Christianly, for self-focus, self-absorption. Uh, it's it's uh, other people get attention before you get attention. In other words, church life is about elbows down, not elbows out. Church life, you know, watch out, I'm coming through, out of my way. This is about other people rather than yourself. Patient, bearing one another in love. This is simply, negatively, the ability to put up with each other. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? But anyone who's been married for a while, you know that you have to give each other wriggle room because sometimes you're finding close quarter living that it's not always easy. And basically saying in church life, you've got the ability to endure, put up, bear with one another, because I want to promise you, uh, some of us have our failings. Might be surprising, but we do. And all this then leads up to verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so this calling... This living out makes no difference about you say, oh, I've got a different temperament, I've got a different personality, my education's different. My, if you knew my family of origin, hey, you'd give me a lot. All those sort of things sort of disappear. Your training, your gift, this is what it means to live as a Christian in church life. And this is extraordinary if you think about it. 
I want to say most of the churches I'm aware of as bishop as I travel around don't often reach the news. In other words, I don't know what news in Robertson's been about the new minister. It might have filtered out. But most of the time what happens here doesn't, is not newsworthy, so if I can put it that way. Not on the national news, not on the TV news. Uh, there's nothing mostly earth-shaking happened in our churches. You've got to understand what's called, what the called one gathering is really like from God's point of view. In Ephesians 2, he says, In the death of Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentiles broken down. What was divided has come together. He says a new humanity has been formed. And this new humanity is in, in the called ones, the gathering of the called ones. That's where it's exemplified. And he said later in Ephesians 3, he speaks about this gathering in extraordinary ways. In 3.10, he says his intent, that's God's intent, was now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's a church, a normal, humble church, that hardly causes a ripple and just does its stuff and people come along. But from God's point of view, something extraordinary. This is God's masterpiece. This is God's great handiwork in all the universe. So he talks in Ephesians 3 about the rulers and authorities. In my mind, go goes to the sort of whole heavenly realm and God takes one day the archangels and angels on a heavenly tour of the universe. He says, come with me, we'll have a look around the place. And they come along and he says, oh, here's the Milky Way in all its glory and it's extraordinary. He says, I want to take you down to the earth and I'll show you the creation that I've put in place down there, and he shows after a bit the Himalayas, extraordinary Mount Everest, he shows the Grand Canyon, that sort of huge thing where you draw drops because there's this massive hole in the ground. He shows the Amazon basin and all this glory. He shows even the Great Barrier Reef. He says those Australians really know how to call something what it really is. It's a reef, it's a barrier, and it goes a long way, so we call it the Great Barrier Reef. But he says, this is not the great masterpiece I want to draw your attention to. So if you revert your eyes now to the sunset of Hawaii, I want you to look down at Robertson, a little church gathering of a few people just down there. And I want to say, this is the centre of my masterwork in all the universe. I want you to observe the called ones at Robertson. And what does God point out to the heavenly array, the angels and archangels about this little gathering down here. Well, he says, well, just look at them. Look at their humility and gentleness. Uh, look at their patience and their bearing with one another. And that's what he points out. And you go, really? That's all? Aren't they supposed to be doing all sorts of stuff that draws attention? Is that, is that the significance of what God is after? for this church at Robertson, this handiwork, this masterpiece of the universe. And that's it. That's what God wants. No sort of fist-waving, making a difference. Living life out as a Christian is what he wants for the church at Robertson. And the whole universe is meant to draw attention to this lived-out reality amongst these people who gather at Robertson Anglican. So, 
That's what verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 16 then explain how you go about doing this. So I'll go through this briefly. So it goes like this. Verses 4 to 6 is that, okay, if you want this outcome, you need unity of belief. How do you get unity of belief? Verses 4 to 6. Verses 7 to 11, well, how do you get unity given the very real differences that often do occur in church life? And verses 12 to 16 look at the unity that brings maturity. So first of all, verses 4 to 6, looking at unity in belief. Uh, in this, he's saying truth or what I might call doctrine, really matters in church life. Verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice the repeated emphasis on one, 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 or seven ones in this section. I won't go through them in detail. But these seven ones are not boundary markers for church life, sort of like if you, you get this wrong, you tip over the edge. They're more controlling centres for church life. All truth in church have its centre on these sort of elements, seven elements, and it controls the belief, structure and formation in any church. And so elements of theology are fundamental. That's why we trained uh, Graham to be understand theology. Uh, we've invested, well, he's invested, but everyone's invested in Graham to get the point where. I, did you do a masters? <coughs> Still going. Still going. Okay. He's done a lot of training to get here. <laughs> it's not as if he masters theology, but we want theology to master him. You get that? Because you don't ever master it. We want to get the point where it's mastered you. And when the master's the leader, he can master the life of the church. And people get nervous, you know, doctrine divides. Uh, we don't want to sort of highlight our differences. But for the leader, it's fundamental that this element of controlling the truth that outworks in the church is not an arbitrary role. This is the very thing he starts at. If you want to have the outcome, remember the outcome is unity, the spirit, bond of peace. Well, it starts with making sure truth controls all that occurs. And so, every church will have its differences. That's okay. Work them out. You know? It says there's one Lord. Well, churches have multiple lords. Really? Well, not... We don't say, but there's functional lords. They might have, their family might be a lord. Their retirement might be a lord. But... They're functional lords. We're trying to always make sure that Jesus, only Jesus is the Lord of this church. We can't have a church that pretends that there's different ways the spirit works. And people might have different ideas. Well, that's okay. We work it out. We control by making sure the Bible forms our life together. And so the leader will make sure these elements are continually worked on for the good of the church. And that means true unity means belief unity. Now, the only thing I want to highlight of those seven is what it means by one baptism. Because you would have to say, of all the things that have caused disunity in church life, you would think baptism would be one of them. Do you sprinkle, dunk or immerse? Do you do it with children or adults? And church is rife with everyone with different options. What's he mean here by one baptism? I suspect the best way of understanding is referring to 
baptism that's related to conversion, not that baptism leads to conversion, but baptism and conversion in the Bible's thinking here are related, two sides of one coin. So basically saying we're a church that believes in conversion. In other words, how do you become a member of this church? Not just because it's a social club, we actually believe conversion is required. That's what he's saying by one baptism. So leadership is required here. And that's what Graham is going to be tasked with. He'll be a Bible teacher. He's making sure the theology of Robertson is centred on what matters. So first of all, unity of belief. But then Paul turns to the unity given the reality of the differences that are always at work in church life. Um, Because great diversity is reality in most churches. Uh, not diversity of belief, but diversity in the people and gifts. Now, I want to, and I'll, it's a night for first, but I want to tell you a secret tonight about Graham Thomas. It's very important for the people of Robertson to hear this, because sometimes we make mistakes. So hear clearly what I'm about to say. You ready? Not everyone at Robertson Anglican will be like Graham Thomas. In fact, you'll find he's very different than other people. You might say, well, what's the big deal about that? I find often people sort of think, well, why are people so different? Well, I want to be honest, I could never join a church where everyone was like me. The old Groucho Marx line, I could never become a member of a a group that have me as a member. I could never belong to a church everyone's like me. One of God's great wisdom elements is he allows enormous diversity to be brought into church life. And the diversity is not just an accident. The very diversity that occurs in every church is actually meant to strengthen it. The very diversity is actually meant to be a unifying reality. So yes, Graham is going to be unique in what he provides... But everyone else is going to be unique, and that whole difference is meant to strengthen the life of the church. All this is related to the people gifts. So verse 7, Paul writes, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. In other words, the grace here is the people given. The called ones, God gives the people. And this is the gift he gives And he gives examples of the particular gifts in verse 11. He says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors. So putting in our parlance for tonight, God has given a pastor for Robertson Anglican Church. He has a name. He's a person called Graham Thomas. That is God's gift to this church. The person, Graham Thomas, who comes as your leader. That is what God has given as a gift. Now, the particular examples of verse 11 are not meant to be exhaustive. They're related there to the outworking of the word of God. But God gives all sorts of people with all sorts of gifts. There's the welcomers, the integrators, there's the morning tea people, there's the cleaning up the church people, there's the encouragers. I've noticed of recent time there's a particular gift. Uh, people go off with others and have coffee and talk about Christian things. That could have gift. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that these things work out. God gives people to his church as a gift. The tricky bit 
and you notice I've left out verses 8 to 10, is what to do with verses 8 to 10. Verses 7 could follow through to verse 11, and you can miss verse 8 to 10, and you'd be no worse off, you would think. Indeed, my normal uh, way of understanding the Bible is if I don't get it, it's probably the most important bit. And verses 8 to 10, I'm about to read out. When you first read it, you don't quite understand why it's there. So almost like an aside, Paul says, this is why in verse 8, it says... When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and give, gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So you helped yet? No. Okay, what's going on here? Paul is a man whose mind has been saturated with the Bible. It just imbibed, is brought up. And here he quotes Psalm 68. Okay? Psalm 68 about the captives who are taken in train. Well, Psalm 68 is picking up a prior part of the Bible, back to Numbers 18 and Numbers 8. In Numbers 8 and Numbers 18, it's about God selecting from the whole people of Israel a particular group called the Levites. He takes the Levites to himself, this is God, cleanses them, sets them aside, and guess what he then does? Pours them back as a gift to be used for the people of God. So he takes this group to himself, cleanses them, and brings them back, and the language in Numbers 8 and Numbers 18 is there a gift back to the people of God. And so Paul applies Numbers 8, Numbers 18, Psalm 68, and applies it to what Christ has done. So how does it all work out together? What he's saying in this whole ascended and descended and all those sort of things, he's talking about Jesus coming to earth, his death, resurrection, ascension. He's saying all this is a sign of how Christ has triumphed. He's won a great victory. And in his victory, his triumph, guess what he's taken to himself? A whole heap of people. The gathered ones. <coughs> They've been captured by Christ. That's what he says. What he ascended, he, gave, he, he led captives in his train. Christ in his victory has captured a whole heap of people to himself and cleansed them. Now, what's he done with them once he's captured them? They're mine. In the language, my precious. No one's going to touch my precious. They're mine. What, now, what does Christ do with these people he's captured? He pours them back out as his gift to the church. Those he's captured are now poured back out to the church. And so, every single person who's been called has been provided as a gift to the church. So one gift we're rejoicing in tonight is God's gift of Graham Thomas as leader. But if you're a part of this church, you are also God's gift in some sort of way. You have been given as a gift by the one who's captured you back here. That's the way the Bible speaks. So you said, well, why is this important? How is this related to make every effort of the bond, of this unity, the spirit, of the bond of peace. Again, 
this might surprise you, it doesn't happen all the time, but it often does happen. You know, there's often power plays in church. People look at church from about who's in and who's out, who's up and who's down, trying to sort of have a sense where you know we fit in and stuff like that. But if we had a unity of understanding for each one of us that says we're all but captives of Christ, who's poured us out as his gift to this church, that's our fundamental, I am a captive of Christ. I've been poured out by the Lord, who's a victor of the whole universe, to this church. And we look at each other with that point of view, all those thinking just evaporates. It cannot stand. So on this occasion tonight, we've got Graham in mind. But it applies to every single one of you. No one is not a gift. And all of us provide enormous things by God's grace as we come to any church. None of us have nothing to contribute. We have relationships, a network of experience, connections, training, gifted. We can provide a whole resource to every church, but this church especially, since we're focusing on Robertson. So it's not just Graham. Every single person who is here has that mindset. So, bond of peace, unity of the spirit. How? Focus on unity of belief and focus on unity given our diversity with the idea that we're all captives of Christ, poured out for the church. And lastly, very briefly, all this then fosters a maturity. This unity fosters a maturity in verses 12 to 16. It says, All this is to prepare God's people for works of service that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Called by Christ, united in belief, captured by Christ, poured out as Christ's gift to the church. All this promotes service in the very church. It promotes an attitude. That is, as we all serve, everyone else is encouraged to serve. Put in another way, it is an environment where people develop into maturity. That's what he says. And this, in turn, brings stability to the life of the church. In verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth, and the waves blown here, there, by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and the deceitful scheming, instead speaking the truth and love. Remember I talk, and, and sad, we laugh about that church where they divided about ham. There's no stability there, is there? We want churches with stable hearts, and there's not tossed this way and that. So Graham, come as your minister here. And under God, he's your gift to build this church up. And he will work hard making sure there's unity of belief. He'll help each person, irrespective of their background, understand that they are someone who have been captured by Christ and been poured out as his gift to this church, and there's not a person this does not apply to, whatever our background, whatever our circumstances. And all this is meant to help the church be one that serves one another, and this will bring about stability and maturity. I've known Graham for five years, five and a half years, six years, or what, some length of time. I want to say Robertson have made an excellent selection, and a man who will bring the very leadership 
that we've spoken about here in Ephesians 4. Please pray for him and Michelle and their kids. It's a big adjustment coming, believe it or not, from Dubai here. But please pray that he indeed with the man that provides the very leadership that Ephesians 4 speaks about. There's no higher calling at work in the world. I pray. Heavenly Father, pray for Graham as he takes up this responsibility and pray indeed these words embed deeply within his heart and indeed in the life of this church. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen.